Well, let's stand together now, and we're going to read our text for this morning, Acts chapter 4, verse 23-31. For those of you that may be visiting this morning, we want to welcome you. Our habit here at Gateway is to let the Word of God speak, which means that I don't sit around wondering what do you need and that kind of stuff. We just say, what's next? And we trust that God in his unfolding word as we go through his word is going to speak to us through his word in a way that is relevant because the word of God is always relevant. We just need to figure out how it's relevant in our particular situation. So welcome and join with us now as we read Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and, uh, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Lord, we uh, come to you this morning recognizing, Lord, that we are a simple people. Um, Lord, we don't compare to you in any way, shape, or form, except that we are made in your image, and you have called us to yourself by virtue of the grace that you have granted through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we are thankful for that. We are overwhelmed with joy at being included in your family, Lord. It's not because of us. It's all because of you. But Lord, as we come to this passage, as we seek to understand what you want us to, to, to bathe ourselves in this morning, we ask, Lord, that you would teach us. Lord, what we, what we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us? And Lord, may I, as your messenger, simply preach the words of life, that, that I would simply be your mouthpiece, that your people would be strengthened and empowered, Lord, to do what you've called them to do, and that those who may be here that are struggling with with whether or not they're saved or or have never heard the gospel before are wrestling with it, Lord, that they would come to see the beauty of the truth of your gospel and bow the knee before you and call you both Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We ask this, Lord, in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we've begun our study in the book of Acts, chapters 1 through 4 primarily, we've been privileged to see the birth and the initial growth of the church. And God's people, when they openly and clearly declare that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, Jesus is building his church. 
Isn't that what Jesus said? He says, I will build my church. As the disciples declare that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, this is the rock upon which he builds his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we've seen already just the, 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 the number of the people that are coming to Christ has been increasing and increasing. Yet since the days of the apostles, Christians have faced much opposition, and much of it has come Sadly, through the organized church, in particular in some later years through the Roman Catholic Church. Under Roman Catholicism, the church grew to become a monster of power and politics designed to keep the institution of the church in control and feared by both rulers and the common man. Only priests in the church had the right to study God's word. The Roman church would say, we don't want to common man uh, to somehow distort God's word, to dilute God's word, or to make it corrupt. We don't cast the pearl of God's word before the swine of the common man. That's for the church. And so we, we hold it tightly. And in particular, the word of God then was not in the tongue of the common people. It was in Latin. It was in Greek. And so when they would have church services and the word of God was read, people wouldn't know what was being said. And in many cases, if you were found with a copy of God's word, in particular a copy of God's word in the language of the common people, you were rooted out by the Roman Catholic Church and punished and in many cases, put to death. And then the Reformation took root. And men like John Wycliffe, back in the 1300s, known as the morning star of the Reformation, wrote the first English translation of the Bible. He laid the foundational seeds for what was yet to come in the Reformation. Then there's John Huss in Bohemia, that would be the Czech Republic, who translated the Bible into the language of that day in his context. Martin Luther then in Germany translated it into German. Then later, William Tyndale translates again, another translation in English. And with these new and fresh translations, the true gospel witness, which had been so badly eclipsed by the Roman Catholic Church, who would only use those Greek and Latin Bibles, this, this fresh translation, this, this wonderful gospel now was revived. Why? Because people could read the Bible. They could see it for themselves, those who were able to read it. And as Jesus was declared both Lord and Christ, the true church once again began to grow. And as these translations were smuggled into England and different parts of Europe, those again who were able to read began to see just the natural truth of the gospel right there in the pages of God's word. And they also saw that what they had been taught by the Roman Catholic Church was a distortion of the gospel. And where the Catholic Church was strong, it's, uh, it was sought to root out these reformers and force them to recant and to demand that they stop preaching the, Ref the Refor Reformation or the Reformed Gospel. And men and women and children would die standing for the truth of God's Gospel. Now, so many people had been entrenched in a distorted Gospel and a corrupt political church that they couldn't even see it. In fact, they wouldn't want to see it, many of them, because they believed in the system that they were a part of. That the gospel 
This is what the reformers figured out, that the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not grace or faith plus works, but grace alone. Not the church authority with scripture, but in scripture alone. Not trust in Mary and the saints, but in Christ alone. Yet even when the refreshing wind of gospel truth was blowing in the air of England and Germany and Bohemia and the rest of Europe, opposition and persecution would raise its ugly head. Satan always wants to distort or hide God's word from the people. He always wants to diminish or discredit the true purpose of Christ and the true nature of Christ. He, he always wants to distort man's true need and God's glorious gospel. But one characteristic of these reformers was that they were a spirit-empowered people. And they were spirit-empowered with boldness to be faithful with the gospel to preach the gospel, to spread the gospel, to stand for Christ in the face of great and continuous opposition. And the seeds of that opposition are found in our text this morning. For what we encounter here is the early church starting to be witnesses in their context. And now, facing great opposition. So what we have here is a call to pray for continued boldness in the face of opposition. This is a call for all of us. This is a call for the church at large to pray for continued boldness in the face of opposition. And as we look at our text, really, there's three sections, two small sections, the beginning, it's a report, then you have this response, which is where we're going to find the prayer, and then you have the result that is going to be, this is what happened after they prayed, and this is how God blessed them, how he empowers them. So let's jump right in now, first of all, at the report where we find continuing opposition. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And here ultimately is the point that we need to begin with when we come to this verse. When faced with opposition, we are to turn to one another in fellowship and share our burdens together. Now, in this case, it was the opposition that was coming from, I want to say, the leaders of, of Israel. But in many cases, friends, when we are going through trials and difficulty, I don't know, for some reason, many Christians are still tight. They're, they just they don't share, hey, look, we have this need. We're facing this trouble. We're going through this difficulty. We need the prayer of the body of Christ to come and, and to support us and help us. Some, somehow we're, we want to be private. And I realize there's some things you want to be private about, but sometimes it's like, hey, look, what are you going through? We'd love to pray for you. But for some reason, we're just not so free to share those burdens with one another. Now, the news here was not good. The priests and the elders had said that Peter and John must stop proclaiming what you've seen and heard. In other words, stop spreading the news about the healing of the lame man at the gate of the temple. Stop using him as a sign that points to Jesus Christ. 
Stop teaching that Jesus is the stone that we, the religious leadership, have rejected. Stop proclaiming that he is now the cornerstone upon which this new regime is going to be built. Stop saying that Jesus uh, has risen from the tomb. In summary, stop speaking as if you have authority in Jesus' name. The religious political leaders made up of the rulers, the elders, the scribes, and one particular influential family, which we saw in our previous passage before this one. They are essentially the supreme court of Israel at this time, and they want to shut down any talk of rebellion and revolt. And they certainly don't want to relinquish any authority that they may presently have. But with the words of Peter and John, who spoke about a regime change, where Jesus is now the fulfillment of what the temple promised but failed to deliver, these religious political leaders only turn to what they can do, and that is the abuse of their power in an attempt to squelch the excitement and the talk that was spreading throughout Jerusalem, not just about Jesus, but also about this lame man, which then was the means by which the apostles could continue to proclaim Jesus. So these uneducated, untrained men who had been with Jesus, the revolutionary, must be silenced. And although the text doesn't say it, with a command, usually there are consequences communicated. If you don't do this, then this kind of punishment is going to take place. Well, Peter and John have no intention whatsoever of obeying the commands of men, in particular, if that means disobeying the command of their God. And that command was to be God's witnesses, Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. This is what they've been commissioned for. This is what they're being sent out to do. So when they are released from prison, they return to their friends. Literally, it says, their own It's a description of the church, which in this context probably isn't speaking about the 5,000. They probably didn't gather in some megachurch auditorium somewhere and say, let me tell you what's happening here. They probably went to a smaller group of people, probably the 120, maybe a few others, but then word would spread out from there. And friends, it's a reminder to us of the importance of the body of Christ, especially in times of opposition and persecution. When we're told by those who are opposed to God that we cannot speak about Christ in the gospel, that we cannot meet together as a church, that we cannot counsel people who are in bondage to sexual sin from which Christ can set them free, we're to turn to one another for consolation, for mutual understanding, and in particular for prayer. When Peter and John reported to the church all that had been said to them in opposition to what Christ had commanded them, this is, we're going to find out what they would do. Hold that thought just for a little bit here. Friends, just a question for us now. What, What kind of opposition are Christians facing here in our present context? Again, I jotted some things down, and they're kind of, been the similar bullet points we've been talking about over the past year or so because they're, they're screaming at us in our context, aren't they? Are you being told that you cannot speak about the gospel? Well, yeah, I mean, that's cancel culture. You don't have the right to say that. You can't say that. 
Are you being told that you cannot share how Christ has been faithful to meet your needs or to provide wisdom in a situation or even to say that he answered a prayer? Are you being told that it's offensive to speak of Christ because it's a form of hate speech? Are you experiencing being pushed to the edges of society simply because you identify with Christ? Now, you might feel, may not feel that fully blown. That may not be your specific experience, but there are those just in, in the irregular context, in the business world, who really feel under the pressure of saying, man, I really can't say much here. Friends, the reality is that we live in a world that is thoroughly entrenched in sin. Now, it's not like the world hasn't been thoroughly entrenched in sin. It's just that right now, not only is it entrenched in sin, it's sopping wet with sin, and it's full-blown for people to see. And rejoicing over it. Now, for those of us who are a little older, we have seen a radical change in society's morality and ethics. Irrational and ungodly ideologies have taken root and are now being held up as what is truly moral and ethical. Let me just rattle off a few, and you know exactly what I'm going to say, I'm sure. They're saying it's evil and offensive to talk about God-given genders of men and women. It's sexist to put forward any biblical idea of sexual purity or the sin of adultery. It's evil. It's evil and racist to stand with the Bible on the subject of slavery when the Bible actually teaches that we are to love others and not commit the sin of partiality. In other words, we're going to contemn the Bible and we're not even willing to read what the Bible has to say about it. When it's the Christians who have been all about raising people up. It's evil, hate speech, hatred toward women in particular to say that the abortion of the child in the womb no matter the stage, is violent murder against another person created in the image of God. That is offensive. That's hateful. And friends, so far the opposition or persecution of the church has been relatively soft. But it's beginning to harden and become more aggressive year by year, month by month even. And the grip of persecution is getting tighter. The waves of persecution are continuing to come faster and faster. There there may be a tsunami heading our direction. So what are we supposed to do? We throw our hands up in the air and say, "Ah, there's nothing we can do. Are we supposed to get angry? Are we supposed to go to the streets and protest? Do we rebel? Do we start to polish our guns? Do we return evil for evil? Do we move out of state? Do we capitulate? But one thing that we are all commanded to do is to trust God and to act like we trust God. It's one thing to say, I trust God. It's another thing to say, I'm going to act like I trust God. Friends, we've all been blessed to live in this country And this context where our Christian existence has primarily been one of comfort and security. And friends, this comfort and security has been the standard for one or two generations of Christians. And we can be guilty of allowing the standard of our experience to be the measurement of God's blessing. And in our minds, 
to be what's normative for faithful followers of Christ. Such comfort and security has not been true for Christians throughout the centuries. <laughs> there have been pockets of such comfort and security in various places and at various times, but for Christians, much of their existence has been to live in times of great turmoil and upheaval. Now, some of that hasn't been directly related to their Christian Christianity. It may just be the places and the circumstances of where they happen to be at that point in time, but there are also times where Christ and his gospel has been gently, forcibly, and violently pushed aside. So, now we need to ask ourselves, what's the response? What is the response for we who are in this kind of a context, where there's this continued opposition? What example of right response to opposition do we have here? And friends, it's a call for the church to pray. This is point number two, by the way, if you're back there. It's a call for the church to pray. And it says, and when they heard it, they lifted the voice together to God and said, but hear this, it's not just a call to pray. What we have here in verses 24 through 30 is a guide to teach us how to pray in the context of a hostile and cruel world that is opposed to Christ. And first of all, I want you to notice that their appeal is rooted in a theological conviction. Friends, one of the first principles that we encounter in this prayer that we should give our attention to is that our theology will always be the basis of our prayers, no matter what that theology is. You will always pray out of your understanding of God. What you think about God will affect how you come before God in prayer. And that's why that, that, that wonderful, famous quote by A.W. Tozer is so helpful here. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so, friends, what our, what our goal is, is to make sure that as we are growing in the faith, we are absorbing ourselves with a greater and more accurate and fuller understanding of who God is, what he does, and what his purpose is in your life. Your theology must be sound, or your prayers will not be. Now notice that there are th that three quarters of this prayer, verses 23 through, tw uh, through 28, is the record of people, the people of God interacting with the character and the nature and the work of God. It's God's people reminding themselves of who God is and what he's done and what he promises. It is theology, pure and simple, and it's this theology that will drive this prayer. So only when we have rooted our prayers with theological conviction can we proceed to make any appeal for our present concern. So a big part of our prayer is reminding ourselves of the character, nature, and the purpose of God so that we can make a proper appeal to him. So on a basic level, prayer is not simply just talking to God about our needs and our problems and our struggles. On a basic level, hear this, prayer is talking to God about God. Now, it's not that God needs to be reminded of who he is and what he has done and 
what he's promised, but that we need to speak those words by faith to demonstrate our conviction about his character. So when we come to God and we say in the beginning of a prayer, Lord, we know that you are a great and sovereign God. We're not just saying that to address him. We're also saying that in the midst of our prayer to make sure that we have a right understanding of who he is. So what we have here, these three quarters of this prayer are focusing on God. So let's think about, first of all, the fact that our God is not tiny. Our God is not tiny. He's not a tiny God because he is the God of creation. Notice what it says here. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is how it begins. Do you guys remember the, the cartoon version of Lion King where Simba, who is the, the, the main character, is, is daring and inquisitive as a lion cub, and he takes Nala, his female cub friend, to the dangerous place of the elephant graveyard. And soon they're surrounded by hyenas, hyenas that want to kill them and want to make them their dinner. And so Simba, wanting to show his strength, goes back and he starts to roar, but it doesn't come out as a roar. It comes out as a squeak. And the hyenas just laugh at him. And they're laughing and rolling on the floor laughing because of his his attempt to be powerful. And so he kind of gets angry and gets up his courage again. And he goes to roar again. He opens his mouth and it's no longer a squeak because his squeak is drowned out by Mufasa who is the king, his father, and he roars. And the hyenas scamper away. Now, friends, we can often feel like tiny Simba, can't we? Terrified of our enemies, but trying to show our own squeaky strength. And we need to be reminded that God is not tiny, He stands behind us, so to speak. He roars against our enemies as the sovereign God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. Now, I want to ask you to do something right now. It's a little unusual. I don't typically do this, but I'm going to ask you all right now just to close your eyes. I'm not asking for money or anything like that, okay? So you can be... I want you to imagine yourself, in your mind's eye, you sitting in your pew. And I just want you to back up a little bit now in your mind's eye and see yourself not only sitting in your pew, but sitting in your pew in the context of this auditorium. You're at First Southern Baptist Church. And I want you to to pull out a little bit more and I want you to see yourself seated in this auditorium in San Lorenzo. And then pull out a little bit more. You're seated in the East Bay And then pull out some more. You're seeing the Bay Area. And pull out some more and you see the state of California. And then you see some more as you pull out. You're you're in the United States of America, which is part of the content of America. And as you pull out some more, you see the earth. And as you pull out some more, you see that the earth is part of a solar system. And you pull out some more and you see that the solar system's in this thing called the Milky Way. And behind the Milky Way is the vast expanse of the universe. Now you can open your eyes. God created all of that. 
It's simply a way to remind yourself of how small you are and how great God is. See, it's God who created the universe, the stars and the planets. What does it say in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Psalm 147, verses 1 through 6. We're kind of building up here. We're going to get to the point, though. He says, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Friends, if God created the heavens and the earth, then surely he can handle a few puffed up religious leaders in Jerusalem. If God created the universe and all that is in it, then surely he can take care of the problem that I am facing an overreaching government, an overbearing boss, an arrogant coworker, a debilitating disease, a financial crisis you may be going through, a disintegrating relationship. He says, I am sovereign, and I created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that's in them. So stop living in fear. Stop living in anxiety. I've got this. Lean into me. And when someone brings up the fact that God is the sovereign creator, he or she is pulling out the most powerful trump card from their hand. And it shut down, shuts down every fear, every argument, every threat, every opposition. Friends, God is not tiny because he is the one who creates. Secondly, God is not timid. Next, the prayer reaches back to the Holy Spirit's words through the King David in Psalm 2. It says in verse 25 and 26, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord. And against his anointed. He is not timid, but he is the God of revelation. Let me just emphasize what's going on here. I invite you to turn back to Psalm 2. I want you to see this. I'm going to read the whole psalm, but I want you to see it, that it breaks up into four voices. We've got the nations, verses 1 through 3, God in verses 4 through 6. God's king in verses 7 through 9, and then the psalmist in verses 10 through 12. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their courts from us. That's the nation's voice. Then God says, we have a voice here, God, he, sit, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
And then God's king. You hear that voice. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, God had given his son this role to be king. And then the psalmist speaks, kind of bringing it all together. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly revealed or quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, this is, this is the psalm that they are now appealing to in this prayer. And what they're emphasizing here is that God is not timid. How does God respond when man issues a challenge to him? He laughs and he's angry. He laughs because it's so absurd. He's angry because it's so arrogant. When the rulers and kings and nations and people plot against God, he is not timid. He's not intimidated. He's not scared. He's not afraid. He's not pacing back and forth in the throne room of heaven wondering what he's going to do. No, he's revealed to us through Psalm 2 that he laughs at the absurdity of their words, that he's angry at the arrogance of their behavior. Imagine a kindergartner who doesn't want to take an afternoon nap, demanding to see the principal, and telling the principal when that principal comes that the students in this class will rise up and rebel and overthrow so that they can be free of the oppression of these rules in this educational institution. It's absurd. It's arrogant. Son, lay down, take your nap. In the Old Testament, we have a story of man's arrogance and absurdity. It's called the story of the Tower of Babel, where they seek to build this tower to the sky. They wanted to make a name for themselves. In essence, they wanted to be like God. And God sees the arrogance and the absurdity of it, and he confuses the the languages, because there's one language, by creating multiple languages. It's absurd. It's arrogant. Man could think he could build a tower and be like God. Have you ever gotten up on a lazy Saturday? You go out into your yard or maybe into your driveway and you notice between a crack or maybe in the dirt that an anthill has formed, which lets you know that all night these ants have been working, moving dirt, gathering stuff, pushing the dirt aside until this, this anthill is about maybe two inches high and maybe even three inches high. It's an amazing thing. And then you kind of look down a little bit closer and you see these, these tiny ants. And, and as you're looking at this, this anthill, you notice that on this anthill are these tiny ants in these tiny tanks with tiny bazookas and tiny weapons of mass destruction. And they're shaking their fist at you and saying, we don't like you. We're going to destroy you. It's an absurd illustration, isn't it? But it shows just how arrogant and absurd man is when he stands in rebellion against the sovereign God, the creator of the universe. 
laughs. He laughs. Psalm 2 verse 4 tells us that when human rulers posture themselves against God, he laughs. It's not a sinister laugh. It's not, he's not laughing because it's humorous. He's laughing because it's so absurd. And friends, we need to remember that the ungodly rulers, political movements, and ideologies that rise up and shake their fists at God and the Bible, God sees their arrogance, he sees their rebellion, he sees the absurdity of it all, and he laughs at their foolishness. So as we look at the world and its ideology, we must see them in light of what Psalm 2 is saying. And what we need to remember is that postmodernism makes God laugh. Secularism makes God laugh. Atheism makes God laugh. Agnosticism, which is like the little brother of atheism, makes God laugh. God both laughs and is angry at the foolish arrogance of atheists like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hutchins. He chuckles and is furious at the hateful arrogance and opposition of absurd ideas that have come from a man like Sigmund Freud, who was thoroughly and totally opposed to God. He laughs and will pour out his wrath against men like Hitler and Stalin and Lenin and all who shake their fist at his truth. And God laughs and is angry at any celebrity, any business leader or politician who mishandles his word for political gain. The absurdity and arrogance of critical race theory, of cancel culture, of wokeness, make God both laugh and get angry. And friends, we can be sure that to be on the receiving end of such laughter and anger is not good for anyone. But it is a just response from a righteous and holy God. My friends, the point for these early believers and for us is that God is not intimidated by the foolish words, actions, and posturing of rulers, kings, and nations, and people who shake their fist at his rule and his king, Jesus Christ. God is not timid. Secondly, or third, I should say, God is not thunderstruck. God is not coming, driving down the road of time, looking at the events of what's happening on earth, and thunderstruck like a deer in headlights, just like, what's going on? I, I create these people, and look how they be. I, I mean, what? How, how could they? I don't know what to do. I mean, psh. no, that's not God at all. Let's read what it says, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod, the king of the Jews, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, ruler, of course, the Gentiles, people of Israel, 
this prayer here and this portion of the prayer is rightly interpreting the promise and warning of Psalm 2 to the events and the people surrounding the death of Jesus. God, in his providence, anointed his son Jesus as king. But he has also predestined that Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel would work together to bring about his ultimate death. They thought that they were getting rid of Jesus for good, as Ed was talking about earlier as we opened the service today. But they were only doing whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. So what did their crucifixion accomplish as they railed against God's anointed? The death and the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. And what was the death and the resurrection of God's Messiah actually achieving? Jesus' enthronement as king of a new kingdom where sin is forgiven and life is given to his people. Friends, do you see the power and the authority of our sovereign God? He takes even the rebellion of his own people, the most wicked act in the history of humanity as, uh, as, uh, by this crucifixion of God's Messiah, and he uses it to establish the enthronement of his king. God in his sovereignty works his hand of providence through the wicked acts and plans of powerful men. Now some take offense here and say, I don't believe in God's predestination. We're not robots whereby man has no free will and is coerced to do God's will. But friends, if you don't believe in predestination, then you don't believe the Bible. I'm not trying to be arrogant here. You can't just ignore a text like this that both says predestination and screams predestination. It's right here in Acts 4.28. And there are other texts of Scripture where we find it also. Romans 8.28-29-30. through through 30. Twice it's mentioned there. Ephesians 1.5 and Ephesians 1.11. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, where the Greek word here is translated, at least in the ESV, decreed, where in the NASB it's called, it's translated predestined. Predestination is a word that is used in the Bible to describe God and his actions toward mankind. The definition of this word in the Greek dictionaries is to foreordain, to predestinate, to determine everything in advice. So, God predestines, he foreordains, he determines his divine plan in, in advance and accomplishes it through the free and willful acts of humankind. Just think about that. God predestines, foreordains, determines his divine plan in advance and accomplishes it through the, the free and willful acts of humankind. God does not violate man's freedom of choice but already decrees what they will freely choose to do. This is true in our text of Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, and even if you want to go back to chapter 1 of Judas Iscariot. I mean, it's not like God is kind of saying, well, here are the general things. I wonder if Herod's going to actually do what I want him to do. I wonder if the people of Israel are actually going to 
yell, crucify him, crucify. I mean, it'd be nice if they did. I just don't know if I can count on them to do it. (laughs) See the foolishness of that? God has already decreed that these things will take place, but man is functioning fully and completely out of his own freedom to choose and to act and to behave how he wants to behave. Man is responsible for his actions, but God in his sovereignty is predestining the events to take place through all of that. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? You and I can't do this, and maybe that's why we struggle with it. But remember, we're talking about God, the creator of the universe. So it's also comforting, and it's also assuring. And friends, we need to be reminded that any and all opposition against Christ and his gospel is part of God's unfolding predestined plan. He is not thunderstruck. He's not shocked. He's not surprised. He's not working on plan B, C, D, E, F, whatever it might be down the road because somehow people didn't come through for him. No, at every moment, the sovereign God of the universe who created the heavens and the earth and revealed how mankind would rebel and shake his fist at him and his son, he is fully engaged in orchestrating his predetermined and foreordained plan. My friends, it's like, wow, what a, what a prayer so far, right? I mean, if you're, if you're praying these things to God, you're also praying them to yourself. God, you are not tiny, but you are great. God, you are not timid, but you are powerful. God, you are not thunderstruck. You are fully and completely in control, working your plan. And we who are now standing in the face of opposition need to be rooted in that theology. And as they marinate through prayer in the character of God, they're reminded that God is in control over creation, over the rulers, over all the wicked events surrounding the death of Christ. And so now having rooted themselves in the character and the plan of God, They are ready to make their appeal to God. So this is letter B now. Their appeal is resting in a supernatural courage. Notice the appeal. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, did you notice what's missing in this prayer? Did you notice what is not said or requested by the people? There's no appeal for the opposition or the persecution to end or to be removed. Now, there's certainly a place for such prayers. But that is not what we find happening here. In other words, the early church understood that the default for the church that is faithfully proclaiming that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, is for opposition and persecution to be present. And so they're not praying for relief. They're praying for their ability to continue to be bold in their witness. Now let's look at a few other passages of Scripture that reinforce this. Jesus speaking now to the disciples, in the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. I mean, your your tribulation is small compared to the fact that 
I'm in charge. That's John 16. Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Those who stood for me in the past, they're persecuted. This is the norm. And then in John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So the issue in this prayer is not the opposition and and the the persecution to be removed, but that Christ's servants would continue to speak his word with boldness. They were concerned that with the opposition, with the persecution, that they would begin to drift from being faithful to be God's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Is that, friends, is that how we pray? Or are we actually praying for our own comfort, for our own security, for the things that we have grown accustomed to like. If our goal is our own personal comfort, security, and protection, then we will tend to pray for God to remove trouble that we're facing. But if we're immersed in the word of God, and we know and understand the character of God and the way he works in the world, when we pray for God to continue to give us wisdom and boldness, for what we are, are enduring, because we know that God is always working to fulfill his providential plan through both evil and faithful men and women. So this is the response, friends. I mean, so much of this prayer is not a request as it is marinating in God. Now notice the result. The result. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Verse 31, we're given three signs or evidences that God has heard and answered their prayer. The place where they pray shakes, they are filled with the Holy Holy Spirit, and they speak the word with boldness. But I just want to draw our attention to that, that second element there, They are filled with the Spirit. It's it's not that these Christians did not already have the Holy Spirit. They did. He came and indwelled them. It's not that they needed the extra work of the Holy Spirit somehow to come into them. No, they received the Holy Spirit back in chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit came and indwelled them. Nor, Nor is it that they only had a little bit of the Holy Spirit and now they just needed to add a little extra bit of the Holy Spirit as if some Christians um, are, are functioning on diesel fuel. And, and as they get more of the Holy Spirit, they increase to, you know, to 82 octane or, 90, or 92 or whatever it might be. It just they're at, until they get to the premium, right? I mean, as if that's, that's the goal. No, you have all of the Holy Spirit when you come to faith in Christ. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be empowered in such a way to, to do what God is calling you to do out of the Holy Spirit who is already residing in you. 
So they ask God for courage to speak. They, they ask God uh, that God will do his part as they do theirs. Now, God's part is found in verse 30, right? It says, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders perform through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they call on God to stretch out his hand to heal, to perform the signs and wonders and do all that in the name of his holy servant, Jesus. But, but they appeal that while God is doing his thing, which only God can do, that they would continue to have courage to speak the word of God with boldness. And friends, it's a reminder for all of us that where the people of God speak the word of God boldly and courageously, Jesus continues to build his church. So where does this boldness to proclaim God's word come from? Well, it's rooted in our theological conviction. And it's resting in our supernatural Courage. Let's draw our attention now to these concluding thoughts. You're not going to see anything on the screen with the concluding thoughts. Just really wrestled has exactly how to kind of come come to this passage at the end here for us this morning. I just thought of three things that again naturally flow out of this text. And first, I just want us to, to remind ourselves of the essential need for the body of Christ. My friends, this is screaming from this text. We in our American individualism can isolate ourselves when we actually need the the support and the help of the body of Christ. And to ask for the church to pray for you is no small thing. The power of prayer is not necessarily to change God's mind, but it's the means by which we come before God on behalf of someone and for God to do what he so chooses to do, but to give all involved wisdom and strength and counsel and all that kind of stuff. And friends, we need that. This is part of the one another's of the church. We are to pray for one another. So be liberal in, in sharing your prayer requests. Now I'm not talking about, you know what, I've got a hangnail on my toe. All right, that, that can come up with your own like, you know, family devotions. But I mean, you're going through some kind of a financial crisis. You appeal to the church. You, you, look, the, the whole point here is not to say, oh, I, I don't want to sound as if I'm asking the church to provide for the financial need. You leave that to the people in the church. But you're going through a struggle. Let people know so they can be praying for you. You're going through some health issue? Call on the church. Call on the leadership. Have them pray for you. We need the body of Christ. And the body of Christ unites together. That's why we, we have a group that gathers on Sunday morning to pray for the needs of the church. And there are many times that I, I come in the morning and they're like, so are there any particular prayer requests? And I'm just like, well, there's this one, there's this one. I mean, I wish I'd be like, you know, here's this list. Have at it. Because we're liberal in sharing our requests, and we need the help of the body of Christ. Remember koinonia, the word we translate fellowship, literally means to share. We share together, and we pray together. Secondly, not only the essential need for the body of Christ, but the essential role of prayer in the context of the church. And kind of those two things kind of morph together. And I just want to encourage you and I want to encourage us, you know, as, as, we, as we look out at the world around us, and when people are saying, you know, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. Let's just remember, when I came to California and I came to the Bay Area, I, I went onto this website called joshuatree.com. If you've ever been there, good thing to do. 
And it tells you the location of unreached people groups and where missionary endeavor is, is, is needed. Did you know that there are unpeople, unreached people groups in the Bay Area? Based on their definition. People who have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And did you know that the Bay Area is classified as a missions context? You are in a difficult place. Yes, I know. Being difficult doesn't mean abandoned. Being difficult means, okay, God, how are you going to work through us uneducated, weak, frail human beings? That's not through our power, but it's the power of the gospel that goes forward. God has placed us here for a reason. And we gather for prayer to say, God, this is, this is your job. You do what you need to do, but give us the strength to do what you've called us to do, to be bold in our witness. Third, the essential perspective we have, we need to have of God and our circumstances. You know, I, I, I loved the, the, the story of Lady Jane Grey that we were reading this morning. And as I was reaching, uh, researching it a little bit more, I just kind of fell in love with, with her heart and her attitude and just the way she was dealing with all these really complex issues. But the simplicity of it was she wasn't somehow philosophizing, or philosophizing is that the right word? Being philosoph- philosophical. There you go. Being philosophical about it. She was just simply saying, this is what the word of God says. And so this is what I have to do. This is who God is. This is how he behaves. This is what he does when he accomplishes his purposes. And so I'm going to need to see the world in that way. We've talked about it before. It's even brought up the 10-year anniversary. You know, we need to learn, continue to learn, to see life through the lens of God's word. And that means then having a right understanding of the character and the nature of God and how he is at work in your life. You're going through trouble right now. God is sovereign and is the creator of the world. And your trouble is not too small for God to intervene and to change. But maybe, just maybe, the issue isn't for God to remove whatever you're going through, but to give you boldness and endurance and strength to go through what he has granted for you. You see, we're we're so caught up with relief that we forget that sometimes this is the path that God wants us to go through, and it is the means by which he is most glorified. I mean, just take that, take that narrative and put it here in the book of Acts. So the church grew in Jerusalem, and there was no persecution. It was just a wonderful, happy town. And you know what? People thought, let's just stay in Jerusalem. Because we like Jerusalem. We like the gospel that's going on. Let's do that. No, what happened? Persecution. What does persecution do? It sends people out. And they go to those places. And the gospels received, guess what? Persecution. I mean, how many times in the book of Acts we find one of the apostles like being chased out of town, but having preached the gospel and a church just going, and now because of persecution going to the next town, while people from the other town still chasing you, preaching the gospel, and then leaving that town. I mean, this is what persecution does. This is God's plan. So, friends, you go to work tomorrow and you stand across the table from a coworker who's just like blankety blanking with Jesus' name. 
You say, okay, Lord, I'm your servant here. Help me to reflect Christ. And not to kind of get all angry and upset, but to say, you've put me here. Help me to live my life in such a gospel way that this gospel that you have granted me can be seen and heard in my conversations and the way I interact. You may not have the opportunity in that context to actually walk through the gospel, but you can surely demonstrate it and pray for an open door to proclaim it. Friends, this is the boldness that we need. And we need as a church to pray for this kind of boldness in our witness. Lord, help us today to consider our own situation in light of all that is being said. That our struggle, our trial, our problem, uh, the, the, the way that we are treated by those that are opposed to you, Lord, all of that is wonderfully and carefully predestined by you. And you call on us not to fight against your providential hand, but to lean into it. And so, Lord, if you choose to remove the the burden or the struggle from us, Lord, we rejoice in that and we know that you can. And it's right for us to pray in those ways, but it's also right for us to pray, Lord, give us endurance, give us boldness, give us, Lord, the ability to continue to glorify your name in the midst of this opposition. And to trust that you are going to do what you do because you're God and that we as your children are going to be faithful as best we can, Lord, to glorify you in the midst of it all. And Lord, that you will accomplish your purposes, Lord, through our obedience. So help us not to see ourselves, Lord, as some little church in a very antagonistic context. Lord, help us to see ourselves as the arm of a mighty powerful, sovereign God that wants to work through a small little place, a small little group of people, Gateway Bible Church, in a powerful, mighty way, Lord, that we can't even comprehend. Would you do that, Lord? Would you have freedom to do that through us? We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.